Hello, hello. Welcome to Be Bold America. I'm your host, Jill Cody, along with my co-host, Dr. Pettis Perry. How are you today, Pettis? I'm doing really well, my friend. How about you? I'm doing pretty good today, too. I'm looking forward to our discussion on um, the future of California uh, with Common Cause. One thing I wanted to add, though, and sometime during our discussion... I don't think Common Cause really um, works with the climate crisis issue, and I could be corrected with Pedro is on, but um, I did want to talk a little bit about what uh, California will be looking, uh, looking at in the 21st century when it comes to the climate crisis. So um, on uh, with our program today, what does a 21st century California look like? Yogi Berra once said, You've got to be careful if you don't know where you're going, because you might not get there. (laughs) What is Common Cause doing to bring California into the 21st century? There is a lot of work ahead to broaden access to the ballot box and increase voter language accessibility. For over 50 years, Common Cause has served as a vehicle to strengthen public participation and ensure public officials and public institutions are accountable and responsive to all citizens, just like you. A vibrant democracy demands strong public participation and accountability for those with position power. Why was Common Cause created over 50 years ago? And what is the organization fighting for today, especially when it comes to the right wing's 10-year project to hold an Article 5 constitutional convention? We have big things to do. Pettis, would you like to introduce our bold guest today? It'd be my pleasure, my friend. Pedro Hernandez earned his JD from the University of California, Hastings College of the Law, where he was editor-in-chief of the Hastings Race and Poverty Law Journal. He is currently the legal and policy director for California Common Cause, where he helps lead the organization's statewide policy and legislative work. He currently serves on the state's Language Accessibility Advisory Committee and is vice chair of the Berkeley City Fair Campaign Practices Commission. Before joining California Common Cause, Pedro was senior policy coordinator for Fair Vote, where he helped helped develop an education plan and helped implement a proportional representation system as part of the settlement in United States v. East Point. Welcome to Be Bold America, Pedro. Thank you so much. Uh, What a welcome. (laughs) I really appreciate it. I I am actually from Santa Cruz County, so it's really nice to to be on the show. Yes, you grew up in Watsonville, right? I did grow up in Watsonville, uh, born and raised. So, um, yeah, it, it, it really shaped, actually, my experience in Santa Cruz County, really shaped the way I look at work and really think about reforms that are really grounded in everyday real experiences because, you know, Santa Cruz County is quite diverse. And um, if you know much about the history of Watsonville, then you'll know that there's been a lot of struggle there for for the working people there. Well, you know, Pedro, I just wanted to thank you for joining us today. And I also wanted to remind people, um, I forget who said it, that democracy is the worst form of government until you uh, think of the rest, you know, the rest of them being, before our democracy, before our country was founded, 
only kings and dictators and emperors were known. So we have a very delicate uh, system here. And I know that Common Cause is working to fight for those systems like the voting and gerrymandering and and media. But first, with all those topics we need to talk about, but first, to get us started, what does a 21st century California look like? I'm really glad you asked that question. Um, So I think it's important to put things into context. California has by far the most limited English speaking voters in any state in the nation. It has more limited English speaking voters than other states have voters total. And and California has been, at least in the national sense, kind of looked to as a model uh, of many reforms uh, in some of the reforms that, you know, California Common Cause has been behind, uh, independent redistricting commissions. Um, we also supported automatic voter registration and, and many other reforms that now, you know, people are thinking we want to see at the federal level or other states have looked to. But a lot has happened in the last five years. Um, the state has gone to everyone receiving a vote-by-mail ballot. Um, and so that kind of changed, kind of changes the way people engage in our democracy. And when you fold that in with how diverse our state is, it really raises the question, like, are we going to continue to be leading and are we going to be striving to, you know, what the values and kind of the reforms that we would like to see or the system we want to see to have a 21st century democracy that finally erases longstanding racial disparities in voter turnout and Part of that work is kind of thinking about, at least in my work right now, is thinking about what is it, what would it look like to have the nation's first truly multilingual democracy? Uh, but California Common Cause is driving democracy, it's driving the democracy agenda in a number of areas as well, and that is continuing to do election protection and advance and protect voting rights. Um, we obviously want to see. Uh, continue to build on the successes of the state independent redistricting commission and also look at how local redistricting can happen and be improved. We also look at money and politics reform and media and democracy is actually a really new exciting field of our work, really looking at misinformation and what that really means at the local level. We also want to see greater transparency, accountability, and ethics. So these are just a number of areas that that we are working on and really just trying to focus on what does it really mean to have a modern democracy where things are transparent, where people feel engaged, and people see themselves in government. Well, one thing that California did was the uh, redistricting commission, the local redistricting and the People's Map Act and the Fair Maps Act. Can you tell us how that's a model for the rest of the country? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, well, you know, the Independent Redistricting Commission experience is only really what's carefully crafted in a way to kind of have a balance of, 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 of making sure there's the right balance between, you know, every day, you know, who is composed of and kind of who the stakeholders are. And, you know, you can't have electeds draw their own lines. So that means putting 
line drawing in the hands of people. But we also want those people to feel engaged and we want them to feel uh, uh, educated. And also they need to abide by the law. So making sure that there is a system where these groups of individuals um, and there's, you know, there's an application process and kind of ways to kind of ensure that there is opportunity for a diverse community of voices. This is at the state level. But that particular model really is only as good as how many people engage with the process. Are people actually providing stakeholder input and making sure that the commission is actually using that input to draw the lines and making sure the communities are state, stay together. We know that there's a number of independent redistricting commissions that didn't have as much success as California. Uh, you know, we'd like to be proud of the California experience that there was like no lawsuits that came after this independent redistricting That uh, is session. remarkable, by the way, <laughs> in this climate. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Um, but, you know, there's also lessons to be learned about how people get selected at the local level as well. And we have our redistricting, National Redistricting Commission, not, sorry, National Redistricting Team, really looking at the national level and really trying to kind of also learn from this last California experience and ask, like, what was so successful about it? And what can other states be doing in order to making sure that they have that sort of success? Because a lot of commission, a lot of other states adopted commissions you know, I believe in the last like 10 years. So we've had it for two, at least two uh, redistricting cycles. Well, you were talking about California becoming a multilingual democracy or ballot um, system and a multicultural democracy. And, and in this country, there is a big fight to keep that from happening. They, they don't want a multicultural democracy. Uh, what are your thoughts between that? I mean, that's sort of an ex existential fight right now between what kind of democracy we're going to be looking at in the future. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd like to kind of, I'm a big history fan, right? So, uh, and I'm not saying that, like, there are a lot of challenges that happen when African-Americans were first trying to ensure that they got the right to vote. And there were a lot of efforts to try to even get recognition for their citizenship. And those struggles continue today, it's true, but that doesn't mean we can't also look to making sure that everyone feels like they're part of our democracy. I think that there's something for uh, people who consider themselves, you know, not a Democrat, to making, you know, there's benefits to having people feel included in your democracy because that means we're able to see each other and talk to each other and understand each other. Yes, there are these threats that exist where people feel that uh, generally frustrated with the status quo, kind of want to see, uh, are captivated by <laughs> authoritarian language. And that is troubling, right? And that also goes to making sure that we don't have misinformation about what is happening in every, you know, in the decisions that are going on around us. Because if people don't understand and are disengaged, they're going to be more isolated and more polarized from each other. So what does this mean? Like, you know, I want to see a 21st century democracy. There's these threats. 
if we don't struggle for a 21st century democracy, we may lose the bigger fight because we didn't struggle for what our democracy ought to look like. And that's kind of, kind of how I feel about it. Oh, I could not agree more. Pettis? Yeah, thank you, Jill. Um, yeah, I think the, the fight has been going on for a long time. This is really not new. Um, you know, it's, it's gone on since the founding of our nation and what we would, we would come to look like. Um, what are your thoughts? I'd, I'd like to know more about the, the United States v. East Point case. Uh, can you talk to us about that? Um, I'm not familiar with it, uh, so it would be helpful for me to really understand exactly what you did when you worked uh, on, your, on the educational components. Uh, yeah, so this is uh, before I was at California Common Cause, so it wasn't a Common Cause case or effort, but I can, so I'll share what I can. At the end of, two, at the, end of the Obama presidency, uh, there was a number of lawsuits that hadn't been, or investigations is what it seemed like, and this is kind of, this sort of, this is a Section 2 lawsuit filed by the Department of Justice in the city of East Point, Michigan, where you had a at-large voting system that, uh, and this, what it looks like is basically a system where all the voters can elect all the seats. And whoever has the most amount of votes in that system wins, and that's sort of a winner-take-all system. And that sounds fair to, you know, at first, but then you start to look at it, and then you realize that if, you, if there is a large community a large minority community that turns out to vote. Um, if they all vote for one candidate, it may not matter because the rest of the candidate, the rest of the voters can vote as a block and essentially fence out representation for the minority community. And that's called vote dilution. And that's, those usually come under Section 2 of the Federal Voting Rights Act. In East Point... There, the settlement that, hap- that uh, followed uh, the, the litigation was implementing a uh, proportional representation system instead of a by-district election system. By-district means you would uh, create single-member districts across the city, and that, in, in East Point it would have been, uh, uh, I believe, I, I think it was Four. It would have been four or five districts. I see. You know, my memories. Uh, I didn't know you were going to ask me that. <laughs> but sorry, about that. sorry. <laughs> I'm like, I really should know. But 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 it, but but that wasn't. But that wasn't a remedy. What a standard remedy looks like is you have as many districts as there are council members there, <laughs> and it, it, that remedy didn't happen in East Point. What they did instead was have a proportional system. So. And they did it through a ranked ballot. Um, So if a community of voters ranks uh, their candidates and their rankings kind of coalesce into, you know, 25 percent of the vote or a third of the vote, uh, they will have a third of the representation. And and what was interesting then is that, you know, you had the African-American community in East Point kind of at like parity, you know, half and half with the rest of the city and having a district system, you might've only ended up with like one seat for the African-American community. And in this particular context, it looked like 
a proportional system was going to kind of allow for opportunities to elect more than one. Um, so that was really interesting. Um, but the education plan that we wrote, because I, I, I fair vote, the organization I worked for before, um, uh, really is looking at ranked ballots and kind of seeing the, wants to expand the use of ranked ballots to, to, to achieve proportional representation and other sorts of uh, reforms and outcomes. Um, but San Francisco had a ranked choice voting system or has a ranked choice voting system. And a lot of, so there's a lot of best practices about how to educate voters around how to properly fill out your ballot. Um, we, I, I helped write the education plan for the city with a, a number of other folks as well. Pedro? Yes. We need to take a break. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> That's okay. Um, you are listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM, Many Voices, One Station. Listen globally online from the ksqd.org website. Our topic today is, what does a 21st century California look like? And we're speaking with Pedro Hernandez, who is the legal and policy director for California Common Cause, where he helps lead the organization's statewide policy and legislative work. To learn more about the national and state Common Cause programs, visit commoncause.org, and then for the state, then add slash California. I'm your host, Jill Cody. Hi, I'm Tom Hartman, your host for Progressive Talk on K-Squid, 90.7 FM, community radio for the Central Coast, 4 p.m. weekdays. KSQD is a vital media resource for listeners in Santa Cruz and Monterey counties and worldwide on the web. Please help support this station by making a contribution to keep the station thriving. Go to ksqd.org and give what you can to help keep shows like mine coming to you daily at 90.7 FM. You know, with six large corporations owning most of the media, it's essential that listeners support grassroots, locally run radio stations like KSQD. Community radio is responsive to its listeners and isn't afraid to challenge the status quo. Please join me, Tom Harbin, in supporting K-Squid, 90.7 FM, community radio for the Central Coast, by making your pledge today online at ksqd.org. That's 90.7 FM, K-Squid. Catch me right here at 4 o'clock this afternoon. Thank you, and tag your it. And we're back. Uh, we're speaking with our bold guest, Pedro Hernandez, who is the Legal and Policy Director for California Common Cause. And Pedro, I don't think people really refer to, have studied enough, have looked at enough, is Rick Scott's 11-point plan to rescue. He states, we will protect the integrity of American democracy and stop left-wing efforts to rig elections. And it, it further says, today's Democratic Party is trying to rig elections and pack the courts because they've given up on democracy. They don't believe they can win based on their ideas, so they want to game the system and legalize voter fraud to stay in power. In true Orwellian fashion, Democrats refer to their election rigging plans as voting rights. We won't allow the radical left to destroy our democracy by institutionally, institutionalizing Dishonesty and fraud. And then he goes on and talks about uh, voter ID requiring, he, they want to require voter ID, and all arguments against voter ID are in favor of fraud. Talks about ballot harvesting, and that allows political operatives and activists to collect and clone ballots from voters, that, that must be banned. 
and that ballots can only be submitted at a polling location uh, by a voter or the post office, and no ballots cast after the election day, which, of course, would, would seriously hurt uh, the military that lives in other countries. So I wanted to bring this up to get your input, since Common Cause and California Common Cause is working on, uh, as they would say, rigging elections with voter rights. <laughs> what are your thoughts? <laughs> uh, where, where to start, Jill? Um, I know. <laughs> Somewhere. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, you know, uh, the reality is, like, there are a lot of laws being introduced around the country that would roll back voting rights. And and th that is the work that our national team is engaged with. Uh, we have common causes all over the country making sure that... Th legislation that would pull back voting rights gets the attention and and sort of uh, opposition that it and you know, you know and ideally like stopping these bills from becoming law at the state level and this goes for many issues many many aspects of our work where we're kind of doing this work across the country in states lobbying essentially for the people in making sure that voting rights are actually not not pulled back, but ideally expanded, right? Um, and, and that is the only way we're going to be able to overcome uh, kind of the rollback of voting rights is by making sure that we're defending voting rights, but we're also expanding it, expanding voting rights to making sure that more people feel included. Um, because, you know, the, the idea of democracy, and, you know, we're a nonpartisan group. But we want to see people reflected in the legislature and in the decisions that impact the people who live in these states, in these jurisdictions. And in a democracy, you know, uh, uh, majority rules. So we want to be able to make sure that the, the value of majority rules continues to exist, because what you see in some places is basically a ruling from the minority. And that is not necessarily good for democracy, obviously. So the rhetoric that there's a kind of a, a plan to kind of undermine our democracy by expanding, expanding voting rights just seems so it's like a great dissonance to my mind <laughs> uh, that I... That Mine too, I, by the way, I agree. <laughs> um, but but I, 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 you know, I, I come at this with calm. And, and, and urgency as well. Uh, because I think it's important to understand that there are people who don't want to see voting rights be expanded. And we, we either have to win those arguments or make sure and mobilize to make sure that those laws don't become the laws of the land, um, essentially lobbying for the people. The national... Common Cause platform is money and influence, putting everyday people before mo big money. And one of the uh, bullet points in the 11-point uh, plan, Republican plan, says the Democrats favor using your taxpayer money to finance political campaigns. No serious person would ever favor this. It must never happen. Well, the converse to that means that, it, that uh, political campaigns would only be funded by private donors. And whoever has the most money gets to be able to buy their their politician. So how how does money and influence in the common cause uh, goal 
of putting everyday people before big money uh, fight that mindset that no taxpayer money should finance political campaigns? Um, there's there's two places to start there, and I want to eagerly start with like a, a one of the bills in California that we're actually the main supporter of, um, and that's that's uh, SB. 1439, uh, and that's by Senator Glazer. And what's interesting is that in California, we have a very uh, strong limit on contributions from contractors or individuals who have licenses, apply for licenses and, 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 and leases, you know, that they can't make contributions to the people making decisions on their contract. The interesting thing is that that explicit that law explicitly exempts local government, county government. Oh my! The city council, school boards. Um, yes. Okay. That's a big loophole. Loopholes. Quite quite a big loophole. Um, and this bill had not got like this particular reform had not gotten a lot of attention in the past. And in California, uh, I mean. <laughs> There's scandal after scandal showing the kind of corruption you see when you have people making big contributions to the individuals who are making decisions on the on their you know it's a on on their own contracts <laughs> uh, and so what's exciting about this bill is that um, it has bipartisan support actually and. It, it, we just got through the assembly appropriations, and we'll be headed down to the assembly for next, and hopefully oh, it'll go to the desk of the governor next. Yeah, that's um, progress. Yeah, so uh, you know, even in California, we have work to do to kind of stop the influence of money, even at the local level, because we want to know, and we want voters to know and trust that their electeds are thinking about them, and not the people who are filling up. Uh, you know, the you know, writing checks to their campaigns. So, what's another way you can kind of address this issue of, uh, uh, you know, candidates need money to run because it takes a lot of money to get your name out there, and uh, you want to knock on doors and you want to, you know, give voters information about who you are and what you represent. One way to do that is through a public finance system. In California, only charter cities can kind of adopt public financing of elections. And, you know, there are two kinds of, of public financing that you see. There's uh, match programs where um, in the city of Berkeley, if I donate $50 to a candidate, the city will match and multiply that by six in addition to my $60. So a candidate can get up to like four, $400 plus dollars from getting a contribution, a smaller contribution from me, and that will create an incentive for candidates to talk to everyday voters and get small dollar contributions rather than spending their time dialing for dollars, trying to make, you know. So th that's a match program, and San Francisco has a match program. The city of Los Angeles does as well. Another type of program is democracy dollars or democracy vouchers, and this really got its start in Seattle, uh, where they mail every eligible uh, recipient of the public finance system uh, four $25 vouchers that they can spend however they want in the elect that is coming up. 
and what this does creates the incentives of can't knocking on doors, talking to voters, you know, engaging them on the issues they care about in order to get those $100, you know, $100, up to $100 of democracy vouchers for their campaign. One, another way of making sure that politicians are putting people ahead of moneyed interests is obviously by changing the incentives of, of how candidates run their campaigns. If you are just joining us, our topic is, what does a 21st century California look like? And we're speaking with Pedro Hernandez, who is the legal and policy director for California Common Cause. Pettis and I would like to add you to our news group, and you may do so by texting Be Bold America at 22828. Text Be Bold America at 22828. We will be right back with our bold guest, Pedro Hernandez, right after Jim Hightower explains how the right-wing Supreme Court judges are putting the interests and power of the wealthy over everyone else in his commentary titled, Enthroning Corporate Power Over the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Jill Cody. Equal justice under law. That's the noble principle carved into the marble facade of the Supreme Court building. Today, though, six right-wing corporate-dominated activist judges control the present court, and they're implementing an elitist creed mocking that ideal. By putting the interests and power of the wealthy over the rest of us, they're turning justice into an anti-democratic concept of just us. In ruling after ruling, today's Supremes are political operatives taking power from the many to further empower and enrich the few. One huge change occurred in 2010 when the five Republican judges decreed that corporations be given a constitutional right to spend unlimited sums of their cash to dominate our elections and to pack our courts with judges who serve them. Sure enough, a majority of Supremes are now in harness to the corporate agenda. Consider their constant push to rig the rules against workers. While the federal judiciary has aided corporate bosses for decades by chipping away at hard-won legal protections for working families, the chisel has become a jackhammer in the last few years. The Supreme Court's Republican majority routinely pounds precedence, logic, truth, and the Constitution itself to demolish the structural pillars of labor rights and organizing. In a 2018 case, for example, the GOP judges undermined the funding of unions by arbitrarily striking down their process for collecting dues, a practice the court itself had authorized 41 years earlier. As Justice Elena Kagan bluntly put it, there was no reason for the court to barge into this matter of long-settled law except that the Republican majority simply didn't like the previous decision and overruled it, quote, because it wanted to. This is Jim Hightower saying, this is not justice, it's raw politics by black-robed partisans supplanting America's hallowed rule of law with their own anti-labor whims. The Hightower Radio Lowdown is made possible by you lowdowners who subscribe to our monthly newsletter, The Hightower Lowdown. You know who you are. Thank you. Welcome back. You're listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM. Many Voices, One Station. Listen globally online from the ksqd.org website. Our topic today is, what does a 21st century California look like? And we're speaking with Pedro Hernandez, who is the legal and policy director for California Common Cause. Let me toss it over to you, Pettis. 
Um, Pedro, I'd be interested in hearing a little bit more about the democracy dollars. Uh, did that strategy have any positive effect? Yes, I'm really glad you followed up on that. So, uh, from what we know, and so California Comic Cause will be releasing a report on a public financing and the sort of models and the lessons learned, and you know, if you're going to draft a public finance system, what that might look like, and that it will be probably coming out later this fall. That said, from what we know and and what we've kind of gathered from interviews and data and researchers who've looked into the experience in Seattle is that you actually saw increased civic engagement. You saw people turn out to vote more. And if we have, so in California, we have a turnout deferential between different demographics of groups. And, you know, we might have okay turnout, but that doesn't mean that it's actually good turnout compared to other more modern democracies across the world. Uh, So in order to, increased turnout, you know, we have to look at what is going to increase engagement. And, you know, there's an opportunity there with uh, democracy dollars, because if a voter has a candidate knock on their door and ask them, hey, what's important to you? Hi, how do you do it? I'm such and such and um, running for this office and I want to get to know you. What are your concerns? that person suddenly becomes much more engaged and invested in the outcome of that election, probably because they had a direct conversation with a person running for that office or a volunteer or, you know, a campaign person. And that's what we need to kind of see more of, making sure that people are getting engaged by, by candidates. So what the literature is showing us is that it's, it increases civic engagement and turnout, um, even among different communities of color. Interestingly, uh, this is a recent development. The city of Oakland uh, recently voted to put democracy dollars on the ballot. So this fall, the city of Oakland here, uh, next door to Berkeley, where I am, will be, uh, the voters there will be deciding whether it adopts a similar, mo- a similar voucher program to the one in Seattle where every eligible person would get four $25 vouchers. And um, I think that will be more, that, that if it gets passes, we'll have an opportunity to know how that would work among voters in California. Outstanding. Um, One question that I've been wondering, and I would think that it's playing out now with all the uh, gerrymandering and the the redistribution of representatives, uh, was was the shenanigans that uh, Trump pulled with the census. And I'm wondering whether anybody is doing any research, whether Common Cause is looking at, you know, what the impact of interfering with the uh, census has had on uh, democracy today and going forward. Has there been any real impact? Has anybody looked at it? Do you know anything? Uh, Yes. (laughs) One of the things that, uh, so there's been a few reports put out by Naleo and others looking at the impact of the undercount. So one of the things that people were really concerned about, and which, which was a big concern, uh, was whether having a, whether or not there was going to be a citizenship question on the census. And the census had traditionally not asked this question because it wanted to get an accurate count of how many people are in the country in order to kind of not only draw lines for representation, but also 
helps with accounting when monies go out to states, right? So we're looking at way we're looking we're work we're going to be working with some grad students essentially on this very question on you know what impact has the undercount had in California. A piece of that uh, that's related to this is that there were other things that happened with the census that did and have had an impact in California as well. And that is every four years, the Secretary of State gets the census information from the census and it makes determinations on language access for uh, at, at, the, at the county and precinct level. And in the last census release, you saw the implementation of uh, differential privacy is what it was called, but it was a way of fuzzing out like fuzzing out the census information at the small level. And they said it was done for privacy reasons. But what it did is it made it hard for the state to determine which precincts had qualifying voters or, or voting, people of voting age population to kind of make sure that those precincts have coverage under California's language access law. So that the, the Secretary of State has not released new determinations since that, that time. And what you saw was a cutting back of language access in California. Calming Cause and a few others, Advancing Justice, the ACLU, uh, Panin, San Diego, we, uh, uh, we sent a letter to the Secretary of State asking them to reinstate previous determinations to make up for this huge gap coverage because they, they, this, this new policy made it so the Secretary of State couldn't make accurate determinations for language access in our own state. They did so. They, they have folded in previous determinations to make up for that coverage. But this continues to be an issue because we don't, and it could be that perhaps with a new census leadership, you will kind of see the release of this data to kind of make sure that there are accurate determinations for language access, but we still haven't seen that yet. Um, so that impact happens here. It's happening across the country uh, on the differential privacy front. But yes, I, I, you know, the undercount did severely, from what the literature tells us, impacted especially Latinos in, in, in Asian American communities across the country. Um, so there, there are definitely some undercounts there. Pedro, I have a, um, another nationwide question. Uh, can you update us on the right wing's 10-year project to hold an Article 5 constitutional convention and explain what that is? Uh, yes. So, <laughs> Common Cause has a program looking at the efforts and addressing the efforts for having a constitutional convention. And what that is is that Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution uh, makes it possible for uh, a convention to be held to draft a constitution by three-fourths of state, you know, when three-fourths of state legislatures agree to do so. The, the issue... There, there is that right in the Constitution, yes, but the issue is that the clause is so small, and there's so many questions about it, about what, how you would run a constitutional convention, because there are basically no rules for how you would conduct a constitutional convention. Who can be there? 
is one question. <laughs> could could it be limited to just one part of the Constitution? That's another. What role would special interests have in influencing the the convention's agenda? That's another question, right? And who would choose delegates to send for the convention? What would happen in the case of legal disputes about the convention? What role would the courts play? There's just so many unanswered questions that it's a very dangerous thing to kind of do if you don't have rules to kind of have a convention. Um, so the fact that there's a convention effort happening and, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely worth paying attention to. Common cause has stopped and pulled back <laughs> uh, these declarations for constitutional conventions at the state level. So we're in states trying to stop these calls for the constitutional convention from happening in state legislatures. And that has been a very successful effort of ours, and we're very proud of that work. Well, it is uh, good to raise people's awareness that the uh, uh, right wing has been practicing for 10 years an actual constitutional convention with their delegates and practicing so that when they, I think they only need seven more states to agree to it, and they would implement it right away. Uh, and, and if I can just carve out a minute here to talk about the climate crisis because, again, we're talking about uh, 21st century California and, and again, we're not going to do and fight for and win our, our climate emergency without a solid, sound, vibrant democracy. And what Common Cause is doing is working on those pillars of a vibrant democracy, you know, ethics legislation, money and influence, gerrymandering and representation, voting in elections, media and democracy. All these things are, are we have to get in place and make strong and vibrant before we can really tackle everything we need to do with the um, climate emergency. But I wanted to point out to people that uh, Rob Bonta, our attorney general for California, has a a page on the impacts of climate change on California and the expected impacts that are coming in the 21st century. We know about sea level rise and coastal flooding and coastal erosion, but 85% of California's population live and work in coastal communities like Santa Cruz. And uh, you're from Watsonville and, and, and you know the Salinas Valley and a lot of uh, farmland and lowlands may also be harmed by salt-contaminated water. Also, um, losses for the Sierra snowpack and our water supply. You know, high temperatures are now causing the snowpack to melt earlier and all at once. Forestry and, and higher fire risks. You know, 80% of California's 100 million acres is uh, forest and rangeland. So we've experienced a lot of wildfires, but today's wildfire seasons um, is just getting starting earlier and last longer. And then the damage to agriculture, again, we have a, a fairly large agricultural community here. And he talks about uh, the increase of when things are hotter, the demand for cooling is going to be greater and the electricity use will be greatest in Southern California and the Central Valley. Uh, and so I just wanted to, and there's public health impacts, you know, the Californians experience the worst air quality in the nation. And then habitat destruction and echo uh, and our loss of ecosystems. So I, I just wanted to carve out a, a couple minutes here to talk about that, because that's affecting our 21st century California as well, and 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 make the link to what 
common cause is doing that is so important. Rick Scott's 11-point plan says about about the uh, climate crisis, he says, uh, the weather is changing. We take climate change seriously, but not hysterically. We will not adopt nutty policies that harm our economy or our jobs. Thank you for letting me rant a little bit there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I have, I have, I, I think. So you pointed out a couple things. So I'm not uh, a climate change expert, and there are really great organizations that do that work and, yes. and advocate on that work. But I, what I will touch on is that you know, common cause is, you know, our bill uh, uh, 1439 will address special interests giving money to candidates and politicians running for office while decisions are being made on their contracts. And that has a, our reform that would limit that has the potential of helping communities help help put communities first ahead of special interests. I, I'm not going to say that that law has is going to be a magic wand or anything because I think it's going to take a lot of experts and, and a lot of bold action from our leaders to actually create the change that we need. Uh, but uh, you know, it's through making sure that politicians are accountable and that there's transparency and they're uh, uh, making decisions ethically with putting people first is very much a shared idea that we want to see with many many folks who I think climate change is going to be the issue that you know we're going to be struggling with in this generation right right well I, I think every facet in every way of what common cause can do only helps the situation. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with California Common Cause Legal and Policy Director, Pedro Hernandez. I'm your host, Jill Cody. Join KSQD the second Sunday each month for Intersections, hosted by Seth Shapiro. Intersections takes you to the crossroads of ideas, mapping the contours of belief and knowledge through the stories and lives of influential voices. Meet notable people in diverse fields who are asking important questions. Their experiences and perspectives challenge us to pursue lives of meaning and purpose. Tune in to Intersections Sunday evening at KSQD 90.7 FM and KSQD.org. KSQD, many voices, one station. Uh, we're back and we're speaking with Pedro Hernandez. And Pedro, in these last few minutes, uh, Pettis and I like to ask our guests what advice they have for us. So what can we keep doing, stop doing, and start doing to um, support common causes work? Well, one thing audience members and anyone listening can do is become a common cause member. Um, Yay! Yeah. Um, <laughs> like me. <laughs> thank you. And, and I'm a common cause member too, so I get a, a nice newsletter in the mail mm -hmm. letting me know about all the program work. Becoming a member, there's you can also volunteer with California Common Cause and Common Cause National. You know, you can sign up to do be part of our election protection work uh, this fall um, and help be part of our team to making sure that um, our folks on the ground um, are able to kind of answer questions and also be a resource for people looking for information. And there are training to help anyone who wants to volunteer. And in California, we also look for volunteers to kind of do that election protection work at the county level, making sure that, uh, you know, that every voter has the opportunity to, to cast a ballot in the way that they feel most comfortable. 
you know, that every election is done in a fair way and that they're, uh, but yeah, lots of opportunities to volunteer and contribute. Um, and I think through the volunteering work, you could also sign up to host uh, one of these movies. The I, I know people are uh, uh, doing screenings of this movie called Suppressed and Sabotage, the, the Fight to Vote. And I think that's a great way to kind of invite your colleagues to kind of get interested and learn about these issues. Um, we also have a podcast called Democracy Is, that is, uh, the host is uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Alexander Leal, and I'm, I'm a producer on it, so you'll I do the arrangements and some of the music in the background, but we're really proud of it. It's a really, the target audience, because, uh, you know, we were thinking about like who would listen to this. It's, it's kind of crafted for young people, uh, young people who want to learn about these kind of wonky issues that they hear about, uh, redistricting what that is. And, you know, in the podcast, we interview people who have gone through the redistricting process at the local level to really ground what it mean, what redistricting means for communities in terms of resources and who people you know, how people get represented so and also we just had a uh, an episode on money and politics so you can hear about public finance systems and uh, we're hoping that maybe teachers and educators get interested but yeah it's a it's been a really exciting project there's ways to get involved and I'm really happy for anyone to kind of sign up and be part of our efforts and uh, kind of supporting legislation that we that we're interested in here and at the national level what what are the other parts of your question jill well one thing i just (laughs) wanted to add when you use the word wonky is that we need to make wonky sexy oh (laughs) (laughs) policy is everything pettis did you have something you wanted to add to the keep start start no, keep going. This is uh, oh, like okay. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, I just, as I said, I think that wonky needs to be sexy. Policy needs to become sexy because everything affects our lives as policy. Even that that pothole in the road. Somebody made a decision, a policy decision, to put the money someplace else than fixing that pothole in the road. It's so uh, important to like. Ahead. Yeah, go it's ahead. so important to like ground like the everyday and you know there's someone who should answer for that yes. in fact there is right it should it's your council member who you know like i my car it's getting all kind of having all this alignment damage because of this hot pothole well my council member who represents my district should be taking care of it and uh bring it to their attention you know and 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 uh get your communities to bring it to their attention together and that is organizing right so and there really should be like more mechanisms to kind of facilitate that sort of engagement on issues as well. I mean, you see some council members are more active in communities and some not. So, um, it, 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 you know, getting involved locally is, is really important for that issue. And I think Santa Cruz County, you know, you have an active base, but, you know, I think there could, more could be done too. But I, I'm thinking about the state as well. It's just like I really think we need to see greater civic engagement. And that's another kind of frontier, I think, of our work in thinking about language access is that, you know, what should language access look like in in democratic processes and civic engagement as well? So, Well, you talk about more mechanisms. And we have a wonderful mechanism in our hand and in our purse or in our pocket all the time. And that's our smartphone. 
And I, I'm amazed. I'd like to ask people to just look up their council people. Uh, if you have one that represents your district or your county supervisor or your state federal uh, representatives and put their phone numbers in your phone. Then they're just one press away from you to make a comment and talk to them. And I'm amazed at how many people do not call their representatives. And it's really so easy. And when I do, they're very polite, very appreciative. So I just, you know, I would like to see that phone um, really is a democracy link. To- I think that's right. And I, yeah. you know, you know what would be helpful too, Jill, is that I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking like, well, I think a lot of people like are afraid to call because they don't know what it looks like to call. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and like, so, you know, you, you call a, 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 an elected office and they ask who you are and say like, you know, I, I'm Pedro Hernandez. I, I live in Berkeley. And one of the things that is really important to me is that we fix potholes in our neighborhoods, right? Whatever and, the issue and, is, and, right. And, and, and it's so important because, like, uh, it, it has been unaddressed for so long, and I really think you would hear on it, like, I can take, you know, maybe you send pictures, but, you know, that's really what it looks like. It's having a conversation. So if people don't think about it as, like, I have this, like, duty to yell at the phone. It's just, like, I have this duty to engage in a conversation with my council member or my representative. Right, and yelling doesn't get anywhere. It's really being very calm and professional and just talk about one issue per phone call. Well, people it, might yell when, when, when you have to yell. Yeah. So, like. <laughs> we don't want to... Uh, 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 turn them off. At least, pr- usually the person answering the phone might even be an intern. <laughs> we don't want to kill the messenger. Pedro, Pettis, and I are so grateful Better, that thank you, you could so join much. us on oh, Be Bold you. America. Yes. Common cause fights for so many facets of our democracy, and we need to keep fighting for our democracy so we can fight for our climate. We all need you to be successful in your work, uh, because when you're successful, then we're, we're going to have a, a, a thriving democracy again. I remember the historians that just met with uh, President Biden saying our democracy is teetering and Common Cause is working on stabilizing that democracy. Our future depends on it. Thank you for being our bold and impressive guest today. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. What's you next on Be Bold America on August 28th at 5 p.m.? We will be speaking with Dr. Deneen Gus who is the Monterey County Superintendent of Schools. Dr. Gus will talk to us about the numerous and sometimes extreme challenges teachers face in and out of their classrooms, such as calls for book burning or calls to wear cameras, personal threats, the school-to-prison pipeline, gun violence. Uh, That discussion will be on August 28th at 5 p.m., Remember, Be Bold America is available as a podcast. You can listen anytime for free from wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give a special thank you to Be Bold America's program engineer, Eliza James and the station's program manager, Howard Feldstein, and again to our bold guest, uh, Pedro Hernandez from California Common Cause. You're listening to KSQD Santa Cruz, many voices, one station. Listen worldwide online at ksqd.org. Stay tuned for Intersections with Seth Shapiro. My name is Jill Cody. And I'm Dr. Pettis Perry. Thank you for listening to Be Bold America. Until next time, keep, stop, start.